I have no doubt at all that this is a really crucial area to look at if we if we want to you know, solve the problem of, of uh, youth mental health. The emphasis is on developing a sleep-wake cycle that optimises your own cognitive function as well as your own physiological function and may well help to protect against things like significant anxiety and depression. Although the biology is complicated, the, uh, the actions to improve sleep are relatively straightforward. Welcome Whatever Works sleep and development. Introducing our guests, Sarah-Jane Blakemore, Russell Foster and Ian Hickey. I'm Sarah-Jane Blakemore, Professor of Psychology and Cognitive Neuroscience at the University of Cambridge in the UK. Uh, My name is Russell Foster, I'm Professor of Circadian Neuroscience at the University of Oxford and I'm Director of the Sir Jules Thorne Sleep and Circadian Neuroscience Institute in Oxford. I'm Ian Hickey. I'm a clinical psychiatrist. I'm the co-director of health and policy at the Brain and Mind Centre of the University of Sydney. What happens to our brains during puberty? I think it's important to set a bit of a historical scene here because until about 25 years ago, it was assumed that the brain stops developing in humans before puberty in childhood. We now know that that's not the case. And in fact, the human brain continues to develop right throughout childhood and also throughout puberty and adolescence and right into the 20s, so into early adulthood. And the brain changes both in terms of its structure and its function. So its structure, it changes um, in terms of the amount of grey matter and white matter it contains, and that those, uh, those tissues become reorganised uh, throughout childhood, but particularly around puberty uh, and throughout adolescence. And in addition to that, Activity in the brain when we're doing things, when we're doing tasks like social interaction or making decisions or reading, uh, activity changes in the brain as well throughout adolescence. Why are adolescents so at risk of mental illness? Most mental illnesses first appear before the age of 24 and largely during the period of adolescence. So adolescence is a vulnerable period of life where we're particularly susceptible to developing mental health problems. Puberty involves massive increases in sex hormones like testosterone and estrogen, and it's known that those hormones have a direct effect on our mood. We also go through physical changes. We change from looking like small children to looking more like adults. And that ch- those physical changes bring with them new pressures. Society starts to treat people differently once they go through puberty and put more pressures and responsibilities on them. And young people start to worry more about what other people think about them. At the same time as those uh, hormonal and social changes associated with puberty, as I mentioned, the brain also changes both in terms of its structure and its function. And those changes are very substantial and very protracted. The social world changes as well. If you think about it, children go from small primary schools where they know everyone pretty much by the end of their primary school to really large secondary schools where suddenly there's a whole load of new people. They have to work out (laughs) who everyone is, where they are in the large and complex social hierarchy. Um, Peer pressure, um, importance of peers increases during the teenage years and young people start to worry more about what other people, particularly their peers, think about them. Something else that changes throughout the teenage years is uh, cognitive abilities, like our our ability to think about the future, to think about other people's minds, to make decisions, to plan. These 
abilities which become more sophisticated and in many ways that's a good thing they give young people the ability to start to worry to start to ruminate about themselves and their futures so all of those things together plus probably lots more factors make this period a vulnerable period for the development of mental health problems why is sleep so important for youth mental health sleep and our sleep-wake cycles are important throughout your whole life Humans have adapted to optimally function in relation to the way the Earth rotates every 24 hours. The essential period of what happens from a physiological point of view in your brain, but your whole body when you're asleep, and then what's happening while you're awake. But at different stages of life, that relationship between your internal clock, your 24-hour cycle, and the external world changes. So for young children, they pretty much get up when the sun gets up, and they pretty much go to sleep when the sun goes down. That really changes in the pubertal adolescent period. So there's a shift, there's a change in the physiology during that period towards going to bed later, potentially getting up later, and the development of a, what people would typically see as an adult pattern of that 24-hour sleep-wake cycle. But it isn't just about actually physically what you're doing. It's what your whole physiology is doing. It's what your metabolic system is doing, which is changing during that period. Glucose, insulin is changing during that period. It's what your immune system is during that period, changes during that period, maturation-wise. What your hypothalamic pituitary system does, what your stress response system changes, and the structural and functional brain changes that Sarah just described, are all changing during that period. And it is really interesting during that passage of massive change, when you would think all of that needs to be really well coordinated, it is the period of maximal onset of the common mental health problems, anxiety, depression, more complicated issues like bipolar disorder and psychotic disorders in later adolescence. So it's really interesting during this period of massive physiological change, the really big shift from early childhood and its alignment with what the earth is doing in its normal 24 hour cycle to the adult pattern, that things go awry. So our interest has been, what's the relationship between the two? What is happening not just in a cognitive sense, in a mood sense, which as Sarah's just emphasized is really important, but physiologically what is happening and what happens when it gets messed up? What happens when it's no longer coordinated in the way it should? What's the effect on mental health, on cognitive function, on things like mood and, and anxiety, but also what's its physiological effect on weight, on metabolism, on immune function? So I think this is one of those issues where really understanding mental health within its total physiology and the normal development of that physiology across the lifespan is really important. And they're the complex issues that we're trying to understand in our research and bring that then to potentially prevention and early intervention for major mental health problems. This is a tractable problem. Why aren't we doing more about it? Well, I think one of the issues is to realise we're all different. So the danger is the tyranny of averages. Just saying in general, you must sleep eight hours or you must be active or you must get up at this time of day and you must go to sleep at that time of day, etc is very problematic in this area. There is considerable variability. Just puberty itself, you know, typically has its onset at earlier ages in young women than in young men. The process for differences is quite large. Where the brain is at in this developmental period is quite different. You know, we have things like school systems that are set around chronological age that may have very little to do with biological age or development at particular periods. We have seasonal changes that are quite different in the different countries in which we live. So it's not just sleep, it's a sleep-wake cycle. So what you did during the day strongly affects what happens in terms of sleep. 
and other factors that are related to that physical activity, light exposure become relevant. So I think the emphasis is on developing a sleep-wake cycle that optimises your own cognitive function as well as your own physiological function and may well help to protect against things like significant anxiety and depression. Why do young people have different sleep patterns? Teenagers are often dismissed as lazy because there is this tendency to want to go to bed late, later and get up later. And that's often referred to as an individual's chronotype, their preference for either morningness, uh, being in the middle, in the neutral zone, or being an owl uh, and a late person. And one's chronotype depends upon uh, an interaction of four factors. One's genetics to start with, there are changes in some of the key clock genes which can either advance or delay the clock. So there's a genetic component to this. But there's also, as Sarah Jane was saying and Ian was saying, there's a developmental issue as well. As one goes from the age of about 10, uh, there's a tendency to want to go to bed later and later and later, peaking in the late teens, early 20s. So following that, that developmental line of puberty. And then after the early 20s, there's a tendency to want to go to bed a little bit earlier and earlier and earlier. By the time we're in our late 50s, early 60s, we're getting up and going to bed at about the time we got up and went to bed when we were 10. So there's that developmental change. And it's probably, as, as Sarah was saying, the sex steroids, the sex hormones interacting with elements of, 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 the, of the biological clockwork. The third is light exposure. And this is often, um, I think, ignored. And, and light has different effects upon the clock at different times. So morning light allows us to get up earlier. It advances the clock. Evening light delays the clock, we go to bed later. And so when we're all agricultural workers, we got a symmetrical exposure to dawn and dusk, and we sort of basically stayed on cue. Now that exposure to light can be asymmetrical. And we did a study a few years ago on, on young people and showed those with the latest chronotype, i.e. the more owl-like, were missing out on morning light, which would advance the clock, and got lots and lots of evening light, which would delay the clock. So an important element to this is the amount of light uh, in the evening. And as Sarah was, Sarah Jane was saying, uh, social media, there's now very clear evidence that the social media use uh, in bed will hugely delay sleep times. And, and that, you know, um, shifts the shift, shifts, shifts the avert rhythm to, to a later time. So those are the sort of factors which tend to make uh, teenagers uh, want to go to bed later and get up later. The whole point about our, the period of adolescence is we need to become independent from our families, from our parents, and affiliate with our peer groups and figure out how to interact with our, our peers and be accepted by them. So there's a big pressure on young people to be accepted by peers and into the peer group. Young people, it's hard to persuade them not to have their phones in their room at night. Some of them even keep their phones on so they hear notifications so that they can quickly see a post. In, in you know through the night this is this is not this is like a, a big culture change in the last 10 or 20 years since we've since smartphones have become ubiquitous it's very hard to change it because of the intrinsic motivation to uh, interact with peers and to affiliate with the peer group for young people for young people what may improve sleep now that has precipitated a bunch of studies in the United States and to some extent Germany by saying, well, hang on, if they've got a, a later uh, chronotype, why don't we start the schools later? 
And it's worth bearing in mind that in the American school system, uh, schools can start at 7.30 in the morning or indeed 7 o'clock in the morning. So, so much, much earlier than the UK system. And uh, researchers like Mary Kaskaden has shown that a later start time, which I mean uh, not starting before 8.30 in the morning, uh, will uh, improve grades, uh, reduce self-harm uh, and reduce truantism. So in the States, there's very clear evidence that a later start time in the school system is beneficial for the students. In the UK, we don't have really detailed studies. Um, what we do have is the impact of education and an understanding of the importance of sleep. So we uh, in Oxford and, and other groups have looked at um, the distribution of, of sleep problems across the population and in a series of different studies. And in one study we did, we showed that about 20, 25% of the teenagers were showing what would be uh, a, a clinical level of insomnia. So really bad sleep and circadian rhythm disruption. And then what we did was to uh, provide teaching packages for the teachers to teach the importance of sleep, about sleep hygiene, you know, uh, uh, not using social media too late into the evening, uh, getting morning light exposure as well as evening light exposure, all those sorts of things. And what was very exciting is that education alone um, was able to take that 20, 25% of kids showing insomnia and take the average out and that they were, were showing far less uh, reduced levels of insomnia. So education alone uh, can be a useful tool in this process. And what's so frustrating is that with this evidence, and it was a pilot study, so we do need to do, to do more data, um, it sort of hit the buffers. Um, and what we're trying to do is get educational packages embedded within our school curriculum, whereby young people would learn about the importance of sleep, how to protect their sleep, and, and, and why it would help, help their, their health uh, and overall, overall well-being. But when we've tried to get that funded, it's never been considered of, of uh, sufficient value. Very, very bizarre in view of the preliminary data and indeed the importance. So. I think in the UK, my first approach would be not to delay the school start time because we're already you know, starting at 10 to 9, 9 o'clock, but to embed uh, sleep education within the school curriculum so the young people can arm themselves with this information and regulate their sleep um, more effectively. Yes, we've had a debate in Australia just recently about daylight saving times. We love to move our clocks around. Personally, like many people in the skating field, I'm strongly against it. We've mucked around with it a lot. And it's been interesting in relation to young people returning to the idea, in fact, of actually trying to have people operate where the clock is actually naturally at. So picking up Russell's point about particularly an emphasis on daytime, morning light exposure to set the clock in terms of starting the day, you know, exposure then throughout the day and then minimising the evening kind of component. So we've also been studying those kids who get really depressed and the vicious cycle they often get into they're often the kids who have probably had a later chronotype, possibly genetically determined in the first place, who once they're depressed, it gets worse. And then once it's worse, they're more likely then, of course, to drop out of school, out of activities, and suddenly they become nocturnal. You know, they're largely going to bed at three in the morning and they're not getting up till midday and then they're missing light. And that's associated with a, with a worsening of their mood disturbance, uh, a much worse trajectory of illness over time and much less likely to respond to sort of standard treatments uh, in that particular area. So it's become a very interesting issue for us about a vicious cycle between maybe the kids who are at risk, the social environments that they're in, the situations we create, 
And we have, I mean, in a country like Australia, we have the potential to use light a lot. You know, we have a lot of light. Now, interesting comment I'd make is, you know, even though we have light a lot, people's sensitivity to light actually varies a great deal. So some, some individuals are much, much more sensitive to light exposure than others. And this may also explain why some become more likely to be depressed in certain situations compared with others. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with what Ian was saying, and this and this um this sort of feedback, this vicious cycle of of of, of being more and more detached from the environment, um, and uh, both mood and and sleep fall apart. We did a study in Oxford led by Dan Freeman in young people who were showing insomnia, and they were experiencing paranoia and hallucinatory experiences. And what I think was so exciting about the results of that study was that just by partially stabilizing the sleep-wake cycle alone, you could reduce the severity of paranoia and hallucinatory experiences, showing a very clear relationship between the sleep quality that one was getting and the severity of mental illness. Sleep, quality of sleep, amount of sleep, of course, for individual differences um, are, are crucial for our mood, our cognitive abilities, our concentration. And that's also true for developing young people and the develop the development of their brains and their minds. Um, so I have no doubt at all that this is a really crucial area to look at if we if we want to, you know, solve the problem of, of uh, youth mental health. Uh, the question is how? I mean, this conversation has been so interesting because it underlines the fact that there are so many factors involved in poor quality sleep. And it's really challenging to improve the quality of sleep in young people. Although there are, there are, there, there is hope like, like Russell's uh, intervent, school intervention program, which is quite sort of cheap and easy to, to do. And it's, it seems strange to me that that kind of thing isn't done more in schools because it's, it's not a difficult or expensive intervention. And as far as we know, it can't really do any harm. I think that's always a key question about interventions, particularly universal interventions in schools. You know, the potential to do harm to some people, even if others are benefiting. But in this case, Russell, you might want to comment. I can't see, I mean, you, you presumably looked at whether there were any harmful outcomes, but I can't imagine there, there were. We couldn't detect any, any harmful outcomes. In fact, not at all. The other thing which I didn't mention is that we also developed um, educational packages for the parents. Um, and so what was being taught within the school was also hopefully being reinforced to some extent by, by, by the parents. Um, and, and I suppose the other thing that we learned from those studies is, is really reflects our naivety because we would ask questions like, do you share your, sleep, your sleeping space um, with, with another person? What we didn't ask was, do you have a bed? Um, and what came out of the studies is that many of these kids, they're sleeping on the family sofa. They don't even have access to a bed. And so we've, we've marginalized sleep across society to such an extent that we don't even think a bed is important. And so I think that, that educational piece is so important, not only for the students, but also for the home environment as well. What are the likely pathways between poor sleep and poor mental health? We've been trying to look at what are the common pathways between sleep, sleep, wake up cycle disturbance and various types of anxiety and depression. And it's not all the same. We would emphasize three common paths that may have different underlying mechanisms. One's largely related to temperamental anxiety. 
anxious kids become anxious teenagers and they're the ones who worry about sleep. They're the ones who've got things on their mind. They're the ones who have trouble going to sleep. And that set of group in that particular area, that disrupts their, their sleep itself. They tend to stay worrying even though they're asleep and tend to wake up feeling tired, have poor cognitive function, underpinned by temperamental anxiety. The second group is kids who've had brain developmental problems, ADHD, autism spectrum disorders, neurodevelopmental problems, and they've always had trouble developing regular cycles, sleep cycles, other feeding cycles, other issues, attentional and other cognitive sets of difficulties. They seem particularly prone to still having cycle problems as teenagers as they move to the developmental period. The third group is that actually where we've been really interested in the circadian mechanisms, the 24-hour clock mechanisms, and the extent to which they're stable or very unstable. People who are not only morning or evening types, but people who wake up and go to bed in a very stable pattern every day, no matter what time, versus those whose circadian pattern is very easily disrupted by external events, by things happening, and they're very variable. They're the ones that we see more associated with the sort of mood disorders, particular mood disorders like manic depressive illness, bipolar disorder, or so-called atypical depression, where it's characterised more by fatigue, by tiredness, by weight gain, different kind of mood disturbance. So that group, we think, have a circadian problem underpinning the mood problem as distinct from the neurodevelopmental or the anxious type. So there's some, we think there's some different mechanisms. And the interesting thing, of course, is different kinds of treatments would be relevant to those different disorders if they are genuinely somewhat independent mechanisms. Yeah, uh, the way we've been thinking about the relationships between um, sleep and circadian rhythm disruption and mental health is sort of is as follows. What we've learned over the past 20 years or so is that the generation of the sleep-wake cycle is immensely complicated. It involves all the key brain neurotransmitter systems and, and an interaction between multiple brain structures. And so if there's a change. So, so, so the idea is that the, the circuits involved in normal mental health and the generation of sleep um, overlap. So if there's a change in a neurotransmitter within the brain that predisposes you to a mental health condition, let's say dopamine or serotonin or whatever, then it's going to have an impact upon the generation of the sleep-wake cycle at some level. So there's a, there's an overlap in, in the middle. And in fact, what's emerged over the past few years is that genes that were originally linked to the circadian and sleep systems are now turning up as being uh, uh, candidates in, in mental health conditions. And indeed, some of the key mental health genes have also been shown to have an effect upon the generation of the sleep-wake cycle. So at its core, there is that genetic predisposition for both mental health and sleep-wake disruption. But of course, it's it's it, it's exaggerated because, of course, the the poor sleep, via its disturbance of both cognitive and physiological mechanisms, can exacerbate the mental health status. And of course, the mental health status, via a whole bunch of circuitry, maybe even medication, will impact up, upon the sleep wake cycle. And so that's the way we've been thinking of it, and was part of the logic of why we thought, well, perhaps if you can partially stabilize the sleep wake cycle, you can actually reduce the level of symptoms. And I think that that is, is a conceptual model which works well for me about thinking about the problem. Why is it important to treat everyone as an individual? You know, we have a slogan where I work about right care first time when you live. And there's a danger that in the worlds we're in for both psychological therapies and medical therapies, we tend to have a one size fits all, particularly in our primary care and other systems. And that actually the assessment of this in individuals when they first come into care is really important. 
that actually it's a key component as we've been discussing perhaps of what is driving their anxiety depression but also what might determine the course of that so we see a lot of situations where a lot of treatments go wrong cognitive therapies medical therapies common serotonin agents that sometimes actually don't help or as russell alluded to actually make the situation worse in the first instance so it's a really important aspect to bring in to the initial assessment of those who get into care to increase the chance that we'll get the best treatment first, early in the course of illness. And I think in the mental health world, it is the case that early intervention is one of our best opportunities for changing the lifetime course. The work we were doing in the Wellcome Trust, when we discussed it with young people, what they often described was that a lot of the people uh, they dealt with, doctors, health systems, others, had never discussed their sleep-wake cycle in relation to their anxiety or depression or other sets of issues. So, you know, even though young people talked about it a lot, they were never given a rationale as to what the relationship might be between their sleep-wake cycle and the difficulties they were having from a mental health point of view, nor were they given a rationale as to what they might actively do and what other things, cognitive therapies, behavioural therapies, medications, might assist or interfere with that basic information. So it was interesting to us Young people were hungry for the kind of knowledge we're talking about. And again, in a straightforward way, best science that we have, give an explanation, how does it work? And then what can I do? You know, with a sense of, well, what differences can I make to actually see whether this works for me? You provide the education materials and you allow young people to find out what works for them. Uh, essentially, uh, it, it, it's not that, it, although the biology is complicated, the, uh, the actions to improve sleep are relatively straightforward. And we have enough information now to, to develop fairly simple guidelines that we could roll out into the school system and indeed more broadly. Visit the Wellcome website to find out more about mental health at the Wellcome Trust.